Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt and I am here with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone, welcome again to the podcast. Holly Walwyn. Good afternoon. And Bradley Allsop. Hi folks. And today we will be talking uh, about three important issues as usual. The first one being the acquittal of Donald Trump um, by a fairly firm uh, margin uh, in the US Senate uh, and its implications going forward. He got he was uh, voted to convict by a majority of senators, but not the two thirds uh, majority required to convict. So uh, he has become the first president in the United States to uh, ever be impeached twice, but he has also survived uh, being convicted twice. So we'll be looking at the uh, implications of that going forward. Uh, Our second story will be a little bit closer to home. We'll be talking about uh, the current state of the Scottish independence debate in the context of the latest uh, wacky proposal from the Prime Minister uh, or sensible proposal, depending on your point of view, maybe. Uh, to instead of building a bridge between Scotland and our final colony uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, he will now be proposing to build a tunnel instead. Uh, So we'll be looking at how feasible that is, whether that might actually be able to bridge the divide uh, literally uh, or uh, underwater instead uh, between uh, Northern Ireland and the UK and indeed Scotland. Um, or whether it's just a uh, a pipe dream or tunnel dream, perhaps. Uh, And then turning finally to the Labour Party, uh, we'll be looking at uh, this supposed policy blitz, which we will be seeing from the leader in the next few days, uh, which has been promised from leader Keir Starmer in the next few days. uh, And also at the same time, Uh, calls from the left of the party, MPs and trade unions to hold a special conference uh, to halt the perceived rightwards drift of the party. We're talking about whether that uh, uh, perceived drift is accurate, whether it's the right thing for a conference to be held, whether we think that uh, policy blitz uh, is going to yield any good results, or whether it's the right thing for the party to do. All of this is coming up uh, in the next hour. But to return to the first story, Donald Trump, uh, as I said earlier, has been acquitted by the United States Senate. 57 votes to 43. Of course, the US Senate has 100 senators, two from each state. Um, he was impeached. Uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago by the House of Representatives. House of Representatives controlled by the Democrats. Of course, the uh, more progressive party in Congress, I think it's fair to say, generally speaking, or of course it's very diverse. Um, uh, they have uh, called for him to be impeached along the basis that he incited the riots that took place on the 6th of January, earlier this year, uh, when the uh, Senate was initially meeting to ratify the results of the uh, general election in the United States, which Donald Trump lost. Uh, of course, many, many thousands of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building uh, and then didn't seem to really have a plan in particular. 
Um, they could have uh, really disrupted American dis- democracy, but they just seem to sort of sweep in in a wave, scattering lawmakers hither and thither. But ultimately, it had no effect uh, in a way because the Senate just simply reconvened a few hours later once they'd all been cleared away, and or cleared away rather, uh, and the results were ratified anyway. However, tragically, four people did die in that riot. Uh, naturally, the uh, legislature of the United States has been somewhat spooked by this. Uh, however, not apparently enough to convict Donald Trump, who is accused of having incited the riot. Uh, he made a speech uh, earlier on in the day saying we're going to march up Pennsylvania Avenue and give courage to uh, those uh, Republican uh, lawmakers in order to basically vote to vote down the uh, ratification of the results. It was transparently, allegedly, uh, a coup attempt. Uh, could have been quite nasty. Didn't happen ultimately, and but did have quite dangerous effects. Now the two sides of the uh, argument uh, basically uh, were that Donald Trump, obviously, he's the the, the Republican position uh, was basically that um, yes, Donald Trump. Did actually do something quite terrible. Maybe it was impeachable if he was still in office. Um, this this was their uh, primary argument was the Democrats were basically doing this as a personal vendetta against Donald Trump. Donald Trump's no longer the president president anymore. Therefore, there is no reason to impeach him. Their probable justification for doing that is obviously Donald Trump has a huge amount of social support amongst the electorate, so they don't want to be seen to be against Trump even now that he is no longer in office. The Democrats, however, uh, argue that if that precedent is set, that uh, someone can't be impeached after they leave office, that itself could be quite dangerous, because if you are an outgoing president, say, Uh, and you want to remain in power, uh, you could incite some sort of coup, some kind of riot, and either you win and the coup is successful, but if you lose and it is not, the precedent has now been set that you cannot be impeached for that crime that you have just committed. And of course, uh, Donald Trump, because he was president at the time, he has legal immunity. The only way he could ever be prosecuted for uh, incitement of riot. Uh, would be if he was impeached by Congress, which is now not going to happen. Uh, so uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts in that in, in, in the context of this. Is this uh, potentially going to be, in the long run, uh, a disaster for American democracy? Uh, or does it not really matter that much? You know, we've got Joe Biden in the White House now. It's not going to happen probably not going to happen again. I'll, I'll, am I am I too worried about this, is basically what I'm asking. Callum Roper. I think it's, it's one of those things where actually it, it sets a dangerous precedent for democracy, um, not just in America, but worldwide, because we're always looking to America to be this pinnacle of democracy. We're always reminded that America is this this place where democracy is, has, has stood so long, it's it's remained steadfast since the constitution was written, um, you know, and it's it's organically grown with its uh, with its amendments. But what we see here is actually it's being undermined heavily because you're right to point out the fact that this sets a dangerous precedent now, because 
if a if a president, albeit it won't be Biden, or at least it shouldn't be Biden, uses their immunity to incite a riot to um, effectively try to undermine one of the three pillars of the of the central democracy in Washington, then that is extremely dangerous because that means that the president is then immune to undermine democracy, immune to undermine the will of the people, albeit the American electoral system is questionable at times, but I think the result was very, very clear uh, from this election, unlike the last election. I think that actually what we need to be looking at is what are people saying about this on the streets? Now, I don't know what people think about this, but in America, there is there is many millions of Trump supporters that believe that the election was stolen. And that's that's extremely worrying because that's in spite of the facts. They don't see the facts. They only see what they've been told. And if, albeit a small crowd of people, decided to storm the Capitol building, if that sort of incitement continues, if that sort of opinion that democracy is that flawed in America that it takes people storming their legislative buildings, then actually that, that's dangerous because it means that the whole system is undermined because you need confidence in democracy for democracy to survive. It needs people to participate and people to accept that once a vote has been taken, that is the final outcome. And if we're not doing that, then it's extremely worrying for the state of democracy. And I'll come back to my point I made at the start about how it could have an impact around the world. There is a number of, of, of very fragile democracies around the world that could filter towards authoritarianism if they're allowed to because of how their systems work, because of the fact that it isn't as embedded as in America. We're lucky that in America that it is a well-embedded constitutional democracy that can very, well, it's very difficult to overthrow the will of the people once a vote has been taken, but it came close. There were a couple of, um, of, of Congress people that are actually willing to vote down the outcome of, a, of, a, of an election, which is very concerning indeed. And the fact that people like Mitch McConnell justified them saying that they cannot impeach Trump because he's no longer in office doesn't make sense because the whole point of the impeachment is not to punish a president, but it's to remove the jurisdiction of that immunity over a president. So that logic doesn't add up to me. And if he's broken a law, surely in a democratic country, everybody is under the law. And if it does take this system to bring them down to the level where they're subject to the law, then so be it. But it seems to me that barring those few dissenters in the Republican ranks, they didn't want to cause an embarrassment to their party, which potentially could have long-standing, um, a long-standing impact on their voter base. Yeah, Andy, that's certainly uh, part of the social context. What do you think, Ollie? Well, I think Callum's right to say that it's a massive cop out um, for the the Republicans who voted for him to be to be acquitted. Um, I I just fundamentally disagree with the fact that because he's not in office, he can't be impeached. Um, and yeah, it does set a very dangerous precedent. But I think one thing um, is for clear is for sure, for sure. Sorry, um, and if we ever needed confirmation that the the Republican Party has kind of lost its way, lost its its 
um, set of beliefs, I guess. Um, this is the confirmation that the party is completely split between, um, you know, the, these uh, far right kind of conspiracy peddling hooligans, really, especially on on that day in January. Um, and, and, you know, what they used to stand for, um, which is very arguably, you know, sensible economic policy, uh, conservation, kind of business as usual. Um, and I, I think, you know, they're, they're completely lost now. And I don't know where, where it's going to go next. But I think as a whole, this whole kind of exercise has been extremely damaging to American democracy. Um, we, we all kind of knew something like this kind of deep down what might happen in the in the four years that um, Trump was in office. Uh, you know, it was a very anxious four years where it could be anything from um, his really kind of aggressive um, kind of global influence, especially towards um, China and Iran. It could be like a, a nuclear war or something. But no, this is what it's, it's boiled down to, isn't it? It's like this really damaging um, like exercise on, on American democracy. Um which, which I think, I think it will be felt for a long time. The effects of, of this judgment, in particular, was this um, sort of degeneration, if you like, of the Republican Party? Did it come out of nowhere, or was it just a uh, a natural consequence of the times that we're living in? Because we, ever since basically Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan changed the economic system of the world uh, to be one unashamedly about free markets and the accumulation of wealth in an ever smaller number of hands. People obviously over time going to become uh, increasingly uh, impoverished, relatively speaking. Um, there's going to be increases in homelessness, wage suppression. All of this creates... An atmosphere. Obviously, we had the the uh, financial crisis 10, 12 years ago now, uh, thirteen years ago almost, um, which uh, you know obviously demonstrated that the system isn't working, and it made clear to people in across the Western world, uh, Britain and the United States, that something clearly needs to change, and the reaction to that has been people like Donald Trump in this country, Brexit. Um, so, you know, we, we can say, oh, well, you know, it's, uh, isn't it sad in a way? I don't think we can really be too sad about what's essentially the American Conservative Party losing its way. But, you know, to me, this is just sort of inevitably what uh, what happens. Um, how... Can we form an alternative to it when there's now it's not it's clearly it's quite clear that Donald Trump isn't just uh, an anomaly and now he's gone the Republicans are going to return to to normal because it's now quite evident that they will probably at least for the foreseeable future always be like this um, they will always be influenced by the legacy of Trump because Trump successfully uh, captured the narrative and utilise the disaffection of the population with the status quo uh, in order to gain power and wield considerable power to get the uh, reforms that he wanted. If, if he had been more competent, if he had been a politician, if he had known 
really what he was doing if he understood his keys to power. He could have been extremely dangerous for American democracy in the long run. And the next person who emerges out of the Republican Party, if they can do the same as him, but with more competence, um, that could be very, very dangerous indeed. Bradley, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. So I think the first thing about the, the state of, of the Republican Party, I think it's interesting to see that, that I think it was seven voted um, against Trump. In, in this trial, whereas it was actually one um, for the previous impeachment trial. So I, I don't know whether that was because it was quite literally um, close to home for, for a lot of those representatives um, or whether it's because of the context now in that Trump, Trump is no longer no longer president. Um, some of those people have just been elected so they don't have to worry about them, the, the ire of the electors um, in, in the immediate future. So I, I, don't, I don't know if those things are part of the reason, but but maybe it's an indication that some of the Republican Party are, are more willing to, to break um, with with the um, with, with Trump and his base than perhaps in previous years. Maybe I suppose that it's too early to tell on that, but it, it remains to be seen. Um, I, I think I think you're right in that I think this Trump Trump was a symptom, isn't he? he he's not a cause really. He, he's a symptom of deep, deep frustration um, with the establishment of the status quo in, in the US. Um, similar, no, not to be too simplistic, but similar to, to what we see in, in the likes of, of Brexit in the, in the UK and, and some elements of, of, of Conservative Party strategy in the, in the UK. Uh, I, there's obviously lots of differences in different contexts and histories to that, but I think there's, there's, there's a, a similarity in there somewhere. Um, and it, it's because the system has failed people for for, for forty years now, um, and the question for the left is is you know actually the, it's legitimate frustration. People people should be angry. People should be a lot angrier than they are actually a lot of the time. If you look at how COVID has been handled both in this country and the US, if you look at levels of inequality, you look at inaction on climate change, um, you know, child poverty, whatever whatever you want, whatever metric that you you know think shows a decent functioning society. Um, there's actually quite a lot of reasons for people in the UK and the US and many other countries to be pretty pissed off. The question is how that is channeled and where it's directed and what becomes of it. Um, and and I, again, I think actually people should have a healthy scepticism of, of political elites and the establishment. Um, but again, it's, okay, what do we do with that energy? What reforms do we push for? What actions do we take to get there? Um, and, and for me, that's where the left has to come in and it has to offer... Um, a different vision. So what we don't want to see is that anger turn into, uh, you know, violence. We don't want to see it turn into a disregard for the rule of law. We don't want to see it um, turn into unfounded accusations against democratic institutions, you know, su- such as House Representatives, su- such as um, what what we so as as far as we know were fair and free elections. That there's no real evidence that that they weren't. Um, so, you know, the, the anger doesn't need to be pointed towards those things. It needs to be pointed towards legitimate structural issues with, with, with the system that we live in that allows the accumulation of wealth and power in the hands of a few. And we, we need to be offering a programme to, to strategically de- destroy that inequality and that, and that unequal power in society. And, that, and that's the job of the left. And that's what we need to be doing. Um, so when, when we see things like the capital rights, to me that that means it's you know it's it, ultimately it's a failure of the left to, to convince those people, and there will always be some people we won't be able to convince. You know, um, e- even if even if uh, you know there was a transformative socialist government in power, maybe something like that, the, the U.S. capital rights would still happen because there's always going to be a minority that's still pissed off. 
Um, but but a, a vision put in place by the left and argued for well um, should at least reduce the likelihood of that sort of thing happening and, and reduce the support it's able to to garner. In in that vein, I think I think you know setting aside the the, the precedent of this and 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 the legal aspects of it and, and all the rest of it, I think Biden in terms of real politics has pro- probably taken the right approach. He's he's basically sort of said you know um, tr- Trump is. is has at least got a moral failure here, but sort of let you know Biden's focus is let's move on, let's crack on, let let let's get stuff done. Um, so, you know he, he's focusing on his COVID relief packages and things like that. Uh, I think for Biden that's probably the best way forward. I think to to sort of as much as possible forget Trump and leave Trump in the past and and the the way the way that you erode the support for Trumpian politics and erode support for the Republican Party is by um, a transformative vision for the American society. Um, and I, I actually, you know, actually, Biden surprised me a little bit. He's doing a bit of a better job in these first couple of months than, than I thought he was going to do, actually. Um, you know, he, he's put a lot of stuff in place around COVID. He, you know, um, re entered climate change and international climate change agreements, World Health Organization. Um, he, checks. He, sorry? The, the, the support checks for people, uh, $1,400. Yeah, he he's um, he's he's supported. I think um, the the stopping of arms to to um, the Yemenis conflict um, in recent days. So he, he's actually doing it now. That's not to say okay, let's let him off the hook. He's going to be great. That's fine. Obviously, the left needs to keep pushing um, both Biden and Starmer in in the right direction. Um, but it's it's not been a terrible start for Biden. I don't think. Um, and I think yeah, the, the way you ultimately stop the likes of of Trump and and erode his support base is is by getting on with a transformative vision for, for society that that materially benefits people in in American society that are, that are losing out. Okay, do you think that's likely? Under Biden, uh, I think things will get better for some, but probably not as much as they should do. Uh, I don't think I don't think under Biden we'll see a fundamental transformation of American society. No. I, so do you I think, think it will be enough to prevent? Say Ted Cruz coming in and, uh, as I said, suggested earlier, becoming a more competent demagogue. I, I don't know. I don't know at this point. I've not seen enough of Biden. Um, I, his track record doesn't fill me with confidence. Um, I, I certainly don't think we'll see the transformation we need in regards to things like climate change in the long term. Um, but I, I think things will probably get better for for a number of Americans in the short term. Okay, Callum, you want to come back? Yeah, I just wanted to, we, we badly speaking there about um, Biden and his shift in position and how that compares to Trump. What I'm really intrigued is to how the Republican Party goes forward now, because the Trump agenda has been rejected by the electorate, or at least in this election. But there still seems to be a hunger uh, for for this sort of Trumpian politics, this this sort of uh, anti-establishment approach, uh, draining the swamp and the like, real suspicion of, of established uh, bodies and, and, and the way of doing things that's been done for, for centuries in America. So it's interesting where the Republicans go from here, whether they decide that they're going to shift back towards a Biden um, type of, of policy, a bit more centre ground, or whether they double down on, on the Trump rhetoric, albeit 
as as we've spoken about, um, actually looking for a, a more competent politician to put that sort of vision forward. Um, but utilising some of the uh, classic rhetoric, uh, scapegoating migrants, um, blaming minorities for, for issues in the country and not actually talking about the real problems. Um, and obviously the, the issues around around COVID, whether they're going to really back the Trump record on this going forward now he's out of office. So it will be interesting. My suspicion is that they're going to try and keep these sorts of policies because they think that that's the way forward. Um, but I think that if they do find somebody to peddle these these lies, peddle these, these this uh policy package that they, they, they'd want to get through and try and roll back some of the potential Biden changes, such as um, uh, environmental standards as, as, a, as an example, then it then will be an interesting uh, few years ahead of us, certainly in the year leading up to the next election, albeit we've just got past the, the most recent one. But I think it will be an interesting debate. And I imagine a lot of Republicans feel like Trump policies can get them through it. But as to whether they'll stick by that and they'll actually look at the Biden policies and the successes that they'll have and maybe shift towards there remains to be seen. It does seem that uh, people like Bernie Sanders and the squad, for instance, are exercising some degree of influence over Biden. So maybe that stability and progress that Biden's administration if not Biden himself, uh, engenders, will persuade enough people to keep him in power. I think it's worth bearing in mind that Biden did actually win by a, a fair majority. Um, however, there is still a, a huge chunk, at least uh, well over 40% of the population that still voted for Trump. So that sort of politics is still a danger. Hopefully it can be overcome. Obviously, and, and on that, there's, there's also, of course, much smaller than those that probably voted for Trump, but there is still a, a significant minority in the US that now um, believes that their president isn't a legitimate president. You know, there are um, a, a number of Trump supporters that have been convinced by the lies that Trump has spread about the election, and there's a there's a real question there for Biden. You know, every president comes to power and, and has people that don't agree with him and, and don't like what he stands for and, and all the rest of it. But but it's quite rare, I think, in in a in a society like the US, for someone to come into power and and be not seen as a as a legitimate president, as not someone that's been legitimately elected by by a significant minority of his of his people. So that that's quite challenging, I think, for Biden. Like, how how do you govern in that sense? How how do you command? respect it. How do you govern a country in that situation? I think that's a real challenge for him going forward. It'd be interesting to see the demographic data on that in a year's time, I would say, to see how many of those people still continue to believe that he's legitimate and whether those people move into a politics that is informed by that belief. Because if that happens, then that and it's, I mean, it could just, just manifest in those people not participating in elections, which, from a real, real politic point of view, might not be a bad thing. Um, however, obviously, we know this is a society which is armed, and we can, we have seen 
instance like Charlottesville, for instance, and that could be another manifestation of uh, that, that sort of resentment um, against the perceived illegitimacy of Biden. Um, it's actually been a very peaceful month. I mean, we're recording on the 14th of February. Um, Biden came into power uh, less than a month ago, but still several weeks, and we haven't really seen that sort of promised uprising, that sort of unrest, um, which is a good thing in and of itself. Um, but maybe this is just the calm before the storm. Who knows? I hope I'm wrong. But we'll move on to our next story. We'll go a little uh, cross back across uh, the pond to uh, another divided nation, which is the UK. Uh, and the latest uh, proposal from the Prime Minister to uh, improve the relationship, shall we say, between uh, England and Scotland and also Northern Ireland and trying to resolve the, uh, the issue with the Northern Ireland border following uh, Brexit. Um, for this one, uh, I have to say I hadn't actually heard this proposal before today. Um, so I'm going to, to hand over to uh, Callum, who's going to explain all. Yes, so uh, this this proposal has been floated for the last few years. Um, we, we remember the proposals for the bridge over the Irish Sea that would run from Scotland to Northern Ireland, um, which uh, some have suggested would have been closed for about 100 days in the year due to the extreme conditions and would have also ran over a munitions dumping field at the bottom of the Irish Sea. It would have been a very expensive project to clear that and also install the bridge and make it weatherproof for that matter. And this has since re-emerged as a proposal, but this time we're looking at a tunnel. Um, in the wake of us leaving the European Union, the UK government likes their big projects, as we know, um, certainly the Boris Johnson government, they like their announcements. We've had uh, proposals for bridges over the channel. Uh, some of us might remember the Garden Bridge in London and uh, Boris Island Airport in the Thames Estuary is some of the other proposals that he's come up with uh, whilst in public office. Uh, this one, though, is an interesting one because it, it seems more feasible than ever given the current political circumstances. Uh, I still have my doubts, but the idea is, is that we have this tunnel running from Stranra in Scotland under the Irish Sea to Northern Ireland uh, to connect up the, the two um, geographical areas of the United Kingdom. So the idea is that this goes under the sea, it stops this backlog that we're, we're told about um, with the imposition of a, of a border in the Irish Sea. It means that checks can be still be completed, but lorries are pulled on trains or or they can drive under the sea and they'll be um, absolutely fine and it will mean there'll be a bigger flow of, of goods and people between mainland United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. Another argument that the um, the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack put forward was that this would somehow convince Scotland that they would want to stay in the Union because it shows that the Westminster government is looking to invest in infrastructure and the economy in Scotland and connect it up to Northern Ireland. I'm very dubious about this argument because I think that the the Scottish debate is so much more than just investment because actually they get a, 
a relatively good deal in terms of money into the Scottish government, albeit it's not perfect. And investment in certain areas of infrastructure, such as railways, is relatively limited. Um, But they do get quite a bit of money from the UK government. So I think that that's not a very genuine argument from from the uh, from the Westminster government. But what this does open up is is a bigger debate about um, the the future of the union going forward, as to whether such infrastructure projects to physically link um, Northern Ireland and Scotland together, uh, linking Northern Ireland and the mainland together, is going to actually prevent. Um, the, the union from falling apart over the next few years because it, it really has hit a uh, a crucial moment for those that want to see the union stay together no matter what. This is seen as an important project to keep it together because it keeps a physical tithe between us and them and ensures that Westminster can keep control. But my, my argument against that or, or a point I would raise is that we do have the Eurotunnel and we joined the European Common Market and the Eurotunnel was built. We joined the European Union when the Maastricht Treaty came into play, but we still voted to leave regardless. So I think that the arguments that this is going to hold the union together is is, is very limited and doesn't hold much weight if we use that as a, as a point. So I think really the, the debate here is as to whether this project is really worth it because it's going to cost tens, if not hundreds of billions of pounds. Um, it's going to need feasibility, feasibility studies. It's going to need a lot of work put into it. And potentially, Scotland could have left the union by the time it's finished. So then it would have been the UK government spending all this money for a tunnel for only partly uh, a, a section of this country. So that's the real debate here. That's an interesting final point, actually. Yeah, we could. I mean, what happens if um, the tunnel's being built and then uh, and then Scotland leaves? Would Scotland want to pick up the tab? Um, would the UK government continue to pay for it to be built? Would the EU do something about it? I mean, I'm not sure how much benefit the tunnel would bring. Um, I assume there's a fair amount of trade between Northern Ireland and scotland but i mean just i'm just one would have thought looking at just looking at the map most of that probably goes between belfast and glasgow directly by sea which is a a reasonably straightforward sea route so i'm not quite sure what benefit a tunnel would bring uh, anyway i mean this this just seems as as this sort of just sort of sprung out of boris's head I, i remember you mentioned the um, Boris Island projects, which you know he was banging on the lot about, and just never seems to go anywhere because basically every academic um, and civil servant who ever looked at it thought this is completely unworkable. Do you think this is the same thing, or or is it is it is it more feasible now? Um, are there other people other than Boris Johnson saying that this is a good idea? Genuinely. Um, or, or are they just sort of, um, rather than just sort of sycophantically saying, patting him on the head and going, yes, Boris, of course, we'll build a tunnel for you. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I think it's certainly more feasible than the likes of of Boris Island. Um, that was a real um, crazy solution to the southeast's airport capacity when we already had Heathrow and plans afoot to expand Heathrow 
which would have been the more cost-effective way of doing that. And we've had that discussion on this podcast a few weeks ago about airports and the future of them. But I think it's more possible and more likely, but I don't think it's it's a sensible use of taxpayers' money in the wake of the, the pandemic. I think it's better investing in housing, better investing in hospitals, in schools, in public services that are actually going to deliver for communities. Um, I think that the the main the main issue here is that the United Kingdom needs funding and in infrastructure. Yes, but if it needs in infrastructure investment, I don't think a tunnel running between one of the more northern extremities of the country and Northern Ireland is exactly the way forward. I think a lot of um, a lot of ferries and a lot of crossings come through Holyhead or Liverpool. So. There we go. Um, so I think that it's actually a, um, it's a it's a big issue and I don't think ministers will back it. As I say, Alistair Jack seems to be backing it, but that's because he's using his uh, cabinet accountability and his, his, his collective accountability there. So he's certainly piling in and backing Boris on this one. Yeah, I mean, it... It's notable. So it has it has been a, an idea floated by the DUP actually in recent years as well. Um, so I mean I, I don't know what that I, I don't know if that particularly helps the credibility of the idea. Um, but it, but it it is it has been a, a bridge specifically rather than Senator has been floated by the DUP um, for a number of years. I mean I, I I can't see really what what the economic benefit of it is really because it. Even if it, because you know there are there are quite you know there's there's a lot of ferry travel in, in that part of the sea between Scotland and Northern Ireland and, and Northern England and, and Ireland as well. So it, it, I mean, if it increases that trade a bit, that doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily help the UK that much because it, it's just recirculating wealth that's already there, isn't it? It's not necessarily mm. creating new wealth. Um, so I, I would have thought, given given the costs, I mean, the bridge, uh, Boris was suggesting 15 billion for the bridge, but a lot of experts are weighing in and say it would be considerably more. I don't know how much the, the estimates for the for the tunnel are, um, but but it's going to be a, a significant amount of money um, and investment for, for something this size to be built. Um, and I, I just question if that's going to be the best use of, of the money in, if you want to increase investment and, and infrastructure in the UK. I'm just not convinced that that's the best place to target it. Um, I I think I think it's much more likely to be a sort of a, an ideological project rather rather than a, a genuine sort of there's a really clear economic case for this. I think I think it, it probably does actually do something quite quite powerful actually I think psychologically to be able to get in a car and, and actually just drive directly to the UK mainland rather than I've, I've done the journey a number of times and you know it it there's, there's a psychological barrier there isn't there if you're driving a car onto a ferry and then you, you're on a ferry overnight or if you get the day ferry you, you're there for several hours and then you get back on the car and drive across you know the difference between that and actually just driving along a bridge and not leaving your car at any point and and, and, and not getting onto a ferry and all the rest of it i think i think there probably is a psychological barrier that would be broken down a little bit by that actually but my, my question is is if if it's a bridge going to to if you're coming from the Northern Ireland side it's a bridge going to Scotland which seems to always be on the edge of having another referendum and leaving the UK that psychological 
that psychological connection isn't really to the to the United Kingdom as a pro, as a political project, is it? it it's to a, a smaller part of the UK which is on the edge of leaving it. So I, I don't know if it would necessarily do that. And then the other side of it is if it helps convince Scottish people not to vote for independence in a referendum because of more UK investment. Um, but again, is it the best use of investment? Is it going to have an enormous impact on most people in Scotland? I don't think it will. So I I, I think it's probably a, a bit of an ideological project there by, by Boris aimed at trying to keep the union together a little bit. But I, I, I don't think it's probably going to work that way. Um so yeah, I, I am sceptical. Ollie? Yeah, I mean, I'd share the, the scepticism. Um, whether it's viable um, economically, um, which it possibly might be, um, it's, a, it's a separate reason, isn't it, um, being viable politically and whether it will actually um, aid the, the solidification of the, the union between, um, you know, Scotland wanting to leave um, because this this has kind of been an issue for a lot longer than um, than the 2014 Scottish independence referendum um, and there's always going to be I think a good major like a good um, section of the population which which do want independence from from the UK um, and with um, the SNP kind of retaining power in, in Scotland, I think that's always going to be quite prevalent because um, that's kind of one of their, um, it's, it's a part of their main um, ideology almost. So yeah, whether this, if it takes years to build, it might not um, ease the immediate um, kind of Brexit implications and, and economic implications of Brexit. Um, but I think as, as other people have said, I think I think um, it will ultimately fail as, as a project as, of unification. Okay, interesting. Right, so uh, we'll see what happens with that. I was just I was looking at a couple of bathymetric maps, actually, de- depth maps, in other words, of um, the English Channel, where the Channel Tunnel is, and the Irish Sea, where this proposed new tunnel would be. And the, the difference is quite startling because whereas with the uh, channel it actually gets shallower where the closest point is between France and England um, down to only about 20 meters at one point um, in the middle uh, there in if you look at the Irish Sea by contrast there's a huge trench which I think is where all those munitions are dumped of course um, which is 200 meters deep so it would be I, I, I would never say that humanity is incapable of anything. And I think that, you know, it would be, on one level, absolutely fantastic if this thing was built. And I would love to drive through it. Just on an engineering level, I think that would be uh, fantastic. However, we have to be realistic and say something like that on that scale is probably not going to be built for 15 billion or whatever it is we uh, talked about earlier. It would be a huge, huge project. Um, but uh, we'll see. I, I think it's probably a bit of a pipe dream. I'm not sure it will go anywhere. But uh, we will see what happens. Uh, it will require a government with vision to get that done. Um, and I tell you what, uh, Boris Johnson, even if his his uh, vision is a bit wonky, um, at least he uh, does seem to have uh, ideas. Whereas, in contrast, the leader of the opposition is often cast as being 
rightly or wrongly, someone who is a little bit less uh, visionary, a little bit bland, a little bit boring. Bland, boring competency is the sort of thing. I mean, we were talking about it almost in a way with uh, Joe Biden before. You know, you just want someone who's steady after the uh, roller coaster that was the pump. Uh, Trump presidency. Maybe Keir Starmer is the same if he takes over from Boris Johnson. But Keir Starmer has nevertheless, over the last nearly a year that he's been in charge, been accused of being quite dull, not had much policy. Now we've been promised a policy blitz. And to be fair, um, you know, there he has actually made some uh, important um, uh, policy announcements over uh, the last few months. Uh, thinking in particular about uh, tuition fees, for instance. He said that we won't return to austerity, which is the big mistake that uh, Ed Miliband made when he was in charge, effectively endorsing the Conservative Party's uh, approach uh, or whole economic approach. So we know that uh, Keir Starmer is against austerity, he's for scrapping tuition fees, um, you know, uh, votes at 16 even. So these are quite radical policies, but they haven't been communicated uh, very well. Now he's saying that we're going to have a policy blitz. Obviously, the other week, we were talking about how uh, also he was going to wrap himself in Union Jack to sell these. In a way, this is kind of what he said he would promised to do, in a way, was to take uh, socialist policies and um, sell them to the people. So why is it then, guys, that there are these uh, left-wing MPs, including Richard Bergen and also the former Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell, uh, as well as Unite the Union and Momentum and the Baker's Union? Why are they all calling for uh, a special conference um, right now? You know, the, the decision uh, lies in the hands of the NEC, of course. They can't just unilaterally call, uh, call for one. Uh, this was called for a few days ago. It was reported by the Independent. Not much seems to have happened in the few Independent days. It might be a bit of a, a damp squib. We'll, we'll have to see. But um, why call... I mean, I thought the consensus on the left was that uh, Kirstam was legitimately elected back in April... 2020, he needs to have a crack at being the leader, a fair crack of the whip, which obviously Jeremy Corbyn didn't really get. And he's never allowed to uh, sort of uh, rule without being sniped at by the right. Um, so why, why, why is there this sudden move to call a special conference? Uh, Callum, what do you think? Yes, yeah, so... Um... <sighs> I'd imagine it. I mean, we know that a conference is is meant to be the the arbiter of policy in in the party. It's is the chief decision making body. Um, so, if we're calling for a, a special conference, I'm assuming it's to hammer out some policies and uh, get some get some member input into the direction of the party. Um, I think that it's an interesting decision to call for that. It's not something that I've thought that we should call for as people uh, on the left or, or any part of the party should call for at the moment. But it does have some some positives um, if it was to be carried out. I think that it would be good for the party um, to really have a coherent 
post-COVID policy for rebuilding the country, for reinvesting into communities that have been left out historically and contemporarily. I think it's also a good opportunity for membership to have an input because the well, the last conference um, wasn't very much a conference and people felt like we were being ignored. Um, I think that it's, it's a good opportunity. As to the timing for it, it's, it's a strange one. Maybe in the summer after the local elections, when we know where we really are, where we're standing amongst the public, whether the, uh, whether the Tory the Tory government and, and Tory uh, party have been vindicated by their by their vaccination rollout, or at least the NHS's vaccination rollout that they'll obviously claim credit for, um, whether their their uh, reckless policies towards dealing with COVID, uh, encouraging people to eat out to help out amongst other things, uh, um, again are vindicated, which has led to over a hundred thousand deaths in the country that which many of which could have been prevented um so it'll be interesting but as a party i think we do need a special conference maybe at some point or wait till september when we do have a conference to really get that clear policy um i suppose a policy program a roadmap um for how we how we will rebuild the country going forward out there in the public domain have it debated and approved by the members of the party as well so we're actually going forward as a united body, not as uh, a set of factions. That is very much throughout the conference, partly because of the fact that we can't meet in person, has been splintered in some areas, and some people feel um, certainly distant from the party leadership at points. So I think that's what we should be doing is is really working on our policy front, looking at how the party can go forward, offering a real positive vision for the future post COVID. And obviously, as you said, Callum, um, standing on a no austerity at any cost platform, no austerity whatsoever. We will invest for the future. We'll invest for the environment. We'll invest for the planet. We'll invest for our children. We'll invest for our elderly people. We'll invest for our working people and really look to build a, a country that's aspirational going forward. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's very good. I, I look forward to that. But it's not. It's a little bit broader than just policy, for instance. Um, this is what Richard Bergen said. He said um, that the left of the party had suffered a wave of unjust suspensions. Uh, he said our party should be laying out a clear alternative to the Tories. And instead of uniting to fight the Tories, the leadership has been fighting on fighting the left with a wave of unjust suspensions and a clampdown on party democracy. It is clear. We can't go on as we are. Members are the beating heart of our party. Volunteers who give up their spare time to keep the party going in our communities. But members are leaving in droves, and many more are demoralised with the direction of the party. A recall conference is needed to put an end to the wave of suspensions on party democracy and to unite the whole party behind the policies that we need to force the government to change tack from its disastrous handling of this crisis. So that's that's his stated reason for holding this conference. So it's a bit broader than uh, than, than just uh, policies. It's also about uh, the suspensions that are going on in the party at the moment, putting a halt to that, which presumably 
a little more urgent than uh, than the conference might be uh, in the summer or when conference is scheduled to be in the autumn. Um, and I know as a CLP secretary, I've just had some information about um, electing our delegates uh, to conference in the autumn. Um, we're concentrating on local campaigns at the moment, so it might not necessarily be a huge priority for CLPs, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Ollie has his hand up. So um, I think that um, it's been a it's been a weird kind of month for for Keir Starmer in, in general. Since since he became leader of the Labour Party, he's faced criticism from from socialists and um, the left. You know he's he's not really had uh, policies of his own and um, purged the the Labour Party. I would say of of socialists and distanced himself from from the previous leadership. But I think in the past few weeks, there's been more mainstream calls for him to be more critical of the Tories over the COVID response and on Brexit as well. Obviously, he's taken this to mean, you know, he needs a, a clear direction. He's got a massive lack of of policy, I would say. And um, I can't really think of anything that that memorable that he's done that isn't already hugely popular with, with the public. So I think it's going to be interesting to see next week um, if there is a, a policy blitz and what does happen with, with this special conference. I'll, I'll certainly be, be hoping for policies that are similar to the, the, the Corbyn era and of the, the 2017 and 2019 manifesto, because if you need um, you know, a, a basis of, of strong um, policies at the moment, and especially of kind of a COVID and a green recovery plan. I think those are those are what to base it off. Absolutely, and I think that having those priorities is something that we need to have as a party going forward. But it is interesting. I didn't even give any thought to uh, Callum's point about the the issues around suspensions and the fact that um, obviously, as the chief decision making body, conference does have a say on that, or at least on how uh, how the processes are carried out within the party. Um, Bradley, I don't know what your take on this is and how how would you uh, feel about a special conference being called? Do you think it's necessary? I mean, I, I mean, I, I, the idea that Saba is going to have a... I, I, think, I think I'm slightly sceptical about the phrase um, a policy blitz because I'm very aware of the, the criticisms that, that Corbyn's leadership team were under... Um, in the in the 2019 general election year, the idea that we had sort of a scattergun approach to policy, and there was too much being put out there without without any sort of collective tissue, I suppose, any sort of coherent narrative that encapsulated them all. I do think that was there a bit. I think that argument's overstated, but but it, it was clear that the the public were a little bit almost overwhelmed by the amount of policy that was coming out at the time, and that and that we didn't do enough to salve that policy and to embed it earlier on and, and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I get a little bit worried now when I hear the phrase po- policy blitz, uh, whether that was just the, the Guardian um, b- being flowery with language, I don't know. Um, but but So I'm, I'm slightly worried about a, an idea of a blitz. Um, but I think the, the general tack of Sama to, to shift focus a bit more on substantive policy, I think, is welcome, and, and that's a good thing. Um, I think as much as possible that should be informed by the membership. So I'm, I'm, I've never been a huge fan of, of how you know party leaders sort of just decide something's policy and, and, and start announcing policy after maybe yeah you know, maybe some consultation amongst the leadership team, maybe the PLP, 
uh, maybe focus groups if you go to the Blair era. Um, but but in in essence, uh, uh, the party is sort of just announcing that something's policy. I've, I've always been a bit sceptical of that. Um, so I think as much as much as any policy announcements you know uh, are going to be made, they should be informed by you know where the party membership is at as much as possible. Uh, so so if a, if a conference if a special conference helped to that end, I think that would be a very good thing. I I don't really think it's on Starmer's radar though. I I don't think I don't think Starmer really cares what the grassroots membership thinks that much to be honest I don't think it's very near I mean he probably cares a bit but it's I don't think it's really in his in his top list of priorities um he his is an approach that's focused on courting the media um trying to court business a little bit now as well he talked about Labour being more pro-business um and and it, it it's I think it's quite a top-down model that, that Starmer runs under so I, I don't really think membership input into the policy making process is, is a particular priority of his um but but if we could help put pressure on that and, and, and keep pushing policy in the left direction, then then I would welcome any opportunity to do that. I think that that's a a good point is that ultimately we are a, a member led democratic party, whether um, certain people like it or not. Um, we have a right as, as as paid members to have an input into policy, um, or at least be represented by uh, delegates from our CLP to conference in that. And if we're a member of a trade union that's also affiliated, again, we have a right to have that input. So I think we'll wrap up there. We're approaching the hour. Um, once again, thank you for listening to the 1201 podcast. Uh, so it's a goodbye from me and a goodbye from Ollie Woolwyn. Stay safe. It's a goodbye from Mr. Bradley Alsop. Goodbye, folks. Uh, thanks for joining us. And a goodbye from Callum Watt. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, uh, I hope you're staying safe, and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye.